is fun. And so is WCBN-FM in Ann Arbor. Well, uh, good evening, and uh, it's about 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim has some family business tonight, so I want to wish Lillian a happy birthday, and we'll see him next week. Uh, Obviously, the confluence of Inauguration Day with MLK Day is uh, almost a sort of a poetic justice for... Barack Obama, so we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. Um, I don't usually pay much attention to Inauguration Day. That's the pomp and the circumstance. Uh, I think most of the presidents in recent years have been pretty substandard by American history. Uh, But I think Barack Obama is an exception. And Barack Obama, I think, uh, once again today at his inauguration, sort of delivered a a solid uh, inaugural. I don't think it's going to go down in history with Lincoln's second inaugural or anything like that, or John F. Kennedy's uh, famous address that, of course, was written by Ted Sorensen. But uh, I think that it is indicative that this speech, and I think, you know, the ceremony was nice with all the uh, diverse voices. Interesting to note, by the way, that poetry uh, was featured in this inauguration again, and it's uh, interesting that John F. Kennedy was the first president to bring poetry into the inaugural pomp and circumstance. My recollection is that Robert Frost actually read um, at John F. Kennedy's inaugural um, one of America's great 20th century poets, and the tradition was brought back by Bill Clinton. So I think that it is a, a kind of an interesting commentary that the, for the fifth time, and uh, all uh, were Democratic left of center presidents, have allowed the abstract language of poetry to be featured in the uh, midst of the inaugural pomp and circumstance. And I think that that's an interesting commentary in and of itself. Barack Obama is in rare company. I was doing a kind of a list of the presidents that have been elected twice and inaugurated twice, and I came up with a number of 15. Two of them were assassinated and didn't, didn't complete their second term, uh, McKinley and Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln. By the way, if you get a chance to see the movie, uh, do check it out. It's a very interesting 
um, re historical recreation of the constitutional amendment, the 13th Amendment, uh, that sort of uh, ratified the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation, of course, was issued in uh, uh, 1863, and we'll be uh, um, celebrating that sesquicentennial uh, later this year. But the actual constitutional amendment was uh, sort of a legislative battle that actually preceded Lincoln's second inaugural uh, in 1865. It actually sort of focuses on the legislative debate at the time and features uh, many fine actors. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, is the prohibitive favorite to win uh, best actor in the uh, uh, Acad upcoming Academy Awards. And Sally Field gives an outstanding performance as well, and I do believe she's nominated. Uh, so check it out for its historical um, merit. I think there are a few liberties that were taken, but that's uh, Steven Spielberg for you. And if ever he's going to win an Oscar, it might be this year. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But getting back to President Obama, I think that this was uh, sort of the uh, crowning uh, speech maybe of his. I, I think this was actually better than his first inaugural in some ways. I'll get to that in a second. But I was uh, noting that R Richard Nixon resigned. So uh, three of these 15 never finished their second term. Four of them were uh, our most famous generals. Um, now, Jackson, of course, was a famous general from the War of 1812. As one historian joked about the War of 1812, nobody knows much about it except when it started, <laughs> which I think is an apposite point. And, of course, Washington Grant and Eisenhower um, were the uh, generals that were at the surrender ceremonies of uh, most import for the American Revolution, the Civil War, and World War II. Um, I noted that one, two, let's see, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine of them are on our money. <laughs> and, of course... Um, Jefferson, Washington, Madison, and Monroe are essential founding fathers. Uh, Monroe is a younger man, but uh, Madison is characterized as the father of our Constitution. He was a co-author of the Federalist Papers. I would argue that Hamilton and Madison sort of played a co-equal role there. John Jay, a lesser role. Jefferson, of course, wrote the Declaration of Independence and may have been our most uh, liberal president in terms of ideology and philosophy, despite the fact that he was a slaveholder. Uh, but Washington had slaves, and slavery must be regarded in the historical context of its time, not necessarily uh, from the moral normative perspective hundreds of years later. So this puts uh, Barack Obama in very rare territory uh, Wilson I have down here, Reagan, Clinton, and of course George W. Bush. Not much to say about uh, George W. Bush except that I will paraphrase a famous aphorism about George Washington, probably our greatest American founding father for a variety of reasons. Jefferson probably our most important in terms of the intellectual background that he gave our system of government, including the Bill of Rights, 
he was in consultation with Madison uh, and insisted on the Bill of Rights uh, as, a, as a part of the Constitution. He was a, a skeptic of uh, centralized power, but uh, he played an important intellectual role in the founding of our country for, um, in many, many areas, including science. And interestingly, I heard a thing uh, recently about language. He uh, invented more words than any of our presidents uh, because he was a bit of a Renaissance man, a great American. And, of course, uh, Barack Obama invoked uh, Jefferson today at one point throughout uh, the, at the beginning of the speech. It was a relatively short speech, which I think was a good move. Uh, people in Washington were complaining about how cold it was. I think it was in the mid-upper 30s. They should be in Ann Arbor tonight. <laughs> um I think that the one word that will always uh, come to mind when I think of Barack Obama is competence. Competence. He has a kind of a comprehensive perspective. He has quiet confidence. But I think at the end of the day, it, it's competence that um, is what he excels at. Um, he, he's run a fairly clean first administration, and many historians talk about the problems of the second administration, it's important to realize that hope and change were campaign slogans that were developed in 2007, and they kind of went out the window with the economic uh, crisis Barack Obama inherited. Uh, many presidents, in fact, what's interesting about their uh, situation uh, is that what they have to deal with in their first term is not the agenda that they planned, but the problems that they inherited from their predecessor. Quoting from a New Yorker article by Ryan Lizza from June 18th of this past year, kind of an interesting uh, discussion about the second term. In fact, that's the title of it, The Second Term. What would Obama do if re-elected by Ryan Lizza? I think he's one of our better, younger, sort of political-style reporters. And in the article, he quotes President Clinton, who said, Look, and of course Clinton was on the stage today, President Clinton used to say to us, uh, quoting uh, Gene Sperling, who was an economic budget advisor for Bill Clinton, said, Look, this is uh, what even uh, a presidency is like. You come in with your agenda and vision, and the fact is, whether you want it or not, ultimately, a lot of the legacy of presidents is how they handle the hand they were dealt, as opposed to what they might have thought their agenda was going to be. And I think this applies to Barack Obama. Um, I think that his... Foreign policy uh, skills have been perhaps his strong suit. I think he handed the ball off on health care for a variety of reasons. And 50 years from now, that will be his crowning achievement. That's probably what he'll be best remembered for. My friendly advice to him is get out of Afghanistan sooner than 2014. Do yourself a favor. Earlier this year, I was reading an uh, outstanding book about the New Deal. And at the end of the book, and I uh, failed to bring in my uh, 
notes on this, but I do have a paragraph discussing the difference between Barack Obama's situation and Franklin Roosevelt's. The author, and I'll try and bring this in next week because I don't like quoting people that I can't identify, but I, I somehow have this loose piece of paper in my Obama file. The author in the epilogue to his book says, Recreating an accurate and objective picture of the New Deal may be more important today. This is a very recent book, by the way, a scholarly book. Than at any time in the last eight decades, to study the period is to be struck by the parallels between economic and political conditions of the 1930s and those opening uh, years of this century. Among factors contributing to both the Great Depression and the Great Recession were excessive speculation in the housing and financial assets, inadequate regulation of financial institutions, and imprudent behavior by the management of major banks and investment houses. Corporate wealth was excessively concentrated in a few hands, and the business community wielded what many believed was excessive influence on the White House and in the halls of Congress. President Roosevelt had no effective model for fighting the worst economic downturn in his generation's experience. Barack Obama did have a model, the New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt ran for office on a platform that overlaid the rhetoric of progressive politics among a distinctively more centrist mindset. He inherited and extended many of Hoover's policies, including the plans for resolving the banking crisis and a tax structure heavily dependent on regressive excise taxes. Much of Barack Obama's uh, inherited uh, a financial bailout and tax structure crafted under George W. Bush. Roosevelt and Obama both encountered marked hostility from business leaders, riled by their populist rhetoric and regulatory initiatives, especially in the financial arena. Both worked dramatic changes in the federal government's relationship with the American people. Over-emotional critics attacked Roosevelt, as they have Obama, as a socialist and tyrant. Yet both presidents appear to have shared a conviction that their task was not to dismantle American capitalism, but to save it from its own excesses. And I think that that is an interesting um, juxtaposition of the situation that Obama and FDR had to deal with. Uh, the hope, of course, went out the window before Obama was ever inaugurated. He did indeed uh, have to refine the TARP um, legislation that was passed in, the, in September, October of 2008 by a coalition of mainly Democrats and Republicans, and I a few Republicans. The House Republicans voted against the TARP uh, the first time around, and the stock market collapsed, as well as the global economy. And America really had one week to uh, do what it had to do, or um, that might have, <laughs> as uh, Ben Bernanke put it, uh, if you don't act by the end of the week, uh, you're not going to have an economy next week. And a call to action, I think, was one of the more poignant aspects of Obama's speech today. I sort of jotted down a few things. You know, unfortunately, I missed probably the first five minutes because I was out shoveling snow, and I didn't realize it was going to start so promptly. 
But I think they sped things up because uh, people thought it was cold on the uh, mall down there in Washington today. And I have a couple of kind of things that uh, um, I call this We the People speech. Uh, Tomorrow we can get the details and somebody can probably look it up as, as I'm speaking to get a concept of how many times he used that expression. Of course, we the people is the preamble to the Constitution. And he invoked this phrase, we the people, to kind of, it was a call to action. It was an invocation of togetherness. Um, I thought it was an interesting speech in terms that it linked a lot of specific policy ideas uh, to a little bit of grandiose rhetoric. It might have had a little bit too much State of the Union for an uh, inaugural address. But it was interesting, at one point, he used the phrase Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall. And, of course, that's a kind of a semi-alliteration there. But the significance of those <clears throat> um, metaphors, of course, is that Seneca Falls is sort of uh, related to uh, women's suffrage, Selma to the civil rights movement, and Stonewall to the gay rights movement. This certainly was the first inaugural address in which the President of the United States uh, dared to even mention gay rights. Bill Clinton may have done so uh, in a sort of backhanded fashion, but I would be surprised if he did. It was basically a call to action, and I think that he tried to invoke a a spirit of bipartisanship um, yet again, and I think that this actually, ironically, has been one of his weaknesses as president. I think that he spent way too much of his first term trying to be bipartisan uh, with people that don't want to play the game. And I think that he should, in his second term, uh, because he did, I think, outline some specifics regarding his uh, policy agenda. There are going to be smaller issues. Immigration is perhaps the area where he may have the most bipartisan support but even today it's interesting that he invoked global warming again as an issue of concern even though you could argue that he didn't do much in the first term in that area uh, simply because he had more pressing uh, policy issues to deal with such as uh, uh, dealing with the economy and dealing with um, the health care bill um sometimes a president doesn't get enough credit for something that they didn't allow to happen and the tarp in my opinion was a necessary evil because of the uh scandalous abuses of our financial sector and the complete incompetence of George W Bush and his administration regarding the enforcement of laws Uh, Many have complained about Barack Obama's, the fact that there are bankers that haven't gone to jail and that sort of thing. But if you read the financial sector of the paper closely, there are uh, almost almost daily uh, financial settlements being made uh, in which the government is clawing back some of the money. Uh, There have been um, Lots of guilty pleas, and in fact, there actually have been some people that have gone to jail. I think I read the statistics 
that out of out of 60 cases, 55 were guilty pleas. So the Justice Department is, is doing some aspects of the uh, financial fraud, because I think that the financial fraud that, that w- occurred before Barack Obama um, became president was extensive throughout the American economy. Um, in fact, I would argue, as I've looked back and analyzed my sort of historical causes of the uh, Great re- re- Great Recession, was that the problems really began in t- late 2006, and that the Federal Reserve was, and there was a report out this weekend that I should have brought in because it had some interesting, um, they've released sort of the minutes uh, from uh, their discussions from five years ago. And it's quite clear that the uh, Federal Reserve underestimated the extent of how many uh, loans were underwater, how many loans were obtained through fraud. The fraud was both at the corporate level and also at the borrowing level. And it's interesting that Shakespeare, who sometimes is one of the wisest philosophers that one can quote, in uh, the character Polonius famously said, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Um, Of course, uh, if you're neither a borrower nor a lender, the American modern capitalist system isn't going to work very well. But um, when mortgages are obtained, um, both as a consequence of greed and also financial desperation, I think it's very important. Uh, I think Barack Obama, I missed the reference to Detroit. I heard that he made a reference to Detroit. But remember that the auto bailout was shepherded by Obama. It was initially passed in the December uh 2008, right in the waning months of the Bush administration. But Barack Obama's administration is the one that insisted on some teeth in the law. They're the ones that fired Rick Wagner. Stephen Ratner, who occasionally writes columns uh, in the uh, sort of a guest columnist in the New York Times, was the administrator of that uh, TARP program. And remember that the auto bailout was part of the TARP uh, legislation. It was, uh, which stands for Troubled Asset Relief Program. It was, it left some money sort of loose. It wasn't all given to the banks and AIG. How outrageous, by the way, just a couple of weeks ago to read about the former chairman of AIG contemplating a lawsuit against the federal government claiming that they had diluted shareholder value. This is a corporation that received $182 billion of bailout money. This is outrageous. Uh, uh, The board of directors of AIG, for public relations reasons, uh, eschewed this lawsuit. But uh, this is one of the most uh, outrageous examples, to paraphrase Michelle Bachman's uh, use of Yiddish chutzpah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's actually chutzpah, but uh, she called it chutzpah. Um, and it's interesting that the early on in the uh, <clears throat> uh, Obama administration White House, Austin Goolsby said this, and this is the, this is basically the essence of the facts on the ground. He said the problem that be, and I'm quoting here from Brian Liz's article in the June 
18th edition of The New Yorker once again. He talked about the policy issues involving the financial situation that the Obama administration inherited. And Eliza writes, several of his advisors talked about pursuing housing reform. The economy is still being dragged down by $700 billion in negative equity for homeowners who are stuck in houses worth less than their mortgages. The problem has bedeviled the White House since 2009 because of the truly effective uh, uh, solutions requires a version of awful politics of a bailout. People or institutions that acted irresponsibly will be rewarded. Somebody, excuse me, has to eat the $700 billion, Goolsby said. There's no way to cover up the fact. Either the banks and mortgage holders have to take $700 billion of losses, or the government has to come up with $700 billion of subsidies to cover these costs. Or you can try and split it. But every significant policy that anyone has come up with, that's a really big price tag. Housing relief, of course, was one of the, I would say, minor failures of the Obama administration. Some of these uh, housing mortgage situations have been worked out at the uh, sort of the micro level, the relationship between a mortgage holder and a bank. There has been some forbearance here and there, and I would say that the mortgage situation is still tenuous in this country, but the bottom line is sometime over the past 30 years, uh, Americans lost sight of the fact that uh, housing at the end of the day is shelter. It's not necessarily a financial um piggy bank at the end of the tunnel and I was talking earlier a little bit about financial desperation that led to some people taking out mortgages and this of course is just simply a fact Uh, many middle class people and shall we say upper middle class people took out second mortgages so that they could send their children to college for instance they hadn't saved the money and with the skyrocketing cost of college that's uh, really uh, began when uh, Ronald Reagan's administration cut off direct aid from the federal government to colleges, we've seen this skyrocketing cost of college uh, over the past 30 years. And it is unsustainable at some level. Something's got to give in the system. And uh, some of the mortgages that were taken out in the Bush era and uh, the end of the Clinton uh, uh, era were as a result of middle class people simply believing that a college education for their children was a good investment and who can blame them. Um, But this idea of, uh, you know, uh, that that all of the all of the uh, financial collapse was due to corporate greed and that sort of thing, I think is too simplistic. There were many, many factors at play, including irresponsible consumption by some individuals. It was interesting that one of the contributing factors to the collapse of the auto industry in 2008 
was the fact that in 2007, 30%, 30% of new car sales were financed by home equity loans. In other words, people were borrowing, taking out equity on their house, the value of their house to buy an automobile, which uh, we know are both assets and liabilities. You need the automobile perhaps to get to and from work. If you don't hold down a job, you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage. So you need a car. And indeed, many people in America live in their cars. Uh, because they're so indigent, and they've decided that cars are more important assets than houses or shelter. And I think some of this philosophy has to change. Uh, of course, the Detroit Auto Show is going on uh, this past week, and um, people are declaring Detroit is back, and there's an element of truth to that. But, of course, there are still um, important... Uh, clouds on the horizon. I thought that Obama's call to action, his spirit of togetherness, his invocation of equal pay, for instance, at one point he talked about equal pay for women, talked about mothers, daughters, grandmothers, etc., uh, was another nice touch. He also invoked Lincoln and Eisenhower when he talked about railroads and roads. I think that infrastructure is one of the areas where Obama needs to be focus like a laser in terms of uh, how to spend the money. Uh, I'd definitely like to thank Andrew for engineering this evening. And I didn't get around to the um, fact that French imperialism has reared its ugly head in northern Africa, but uh, we'll get to that a little bit next week because the situation in Algeria and Mali do, don't strike me as being settled anytime soon. Uh, Yazoo City Calling will be coming up next right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, so do, do stay tuned. By the way, the roads out there are, are a little slippery here and there. Drive with caution. Remember that blowing snow in this kind of cold weather can refreeze, even when pavement looks like it might be dry. Uh, blowing snow can uh, <laughs> rear its ugly head in certain spots, particularly low-lying areas, and we're certainly going to have blowing snow tonight. And if you're headed west in any way, shape, or form, be very careful because I understand that the snow situation west of Jackson, Michigan, <clears throat> all the way to Lake Michigan is actually a, a serious problem. Uh, they were talking about 10 inches of snow over the next uh, day or two on the west coast of Michigan. Um, one of the other interesting things at the end of Obama's speech, oh, I'm getting the signal that it is time to cut out, so I'll just end with that. He discussed the issue of oath and that he uh, invoked the goal of country and, um, oh, I see, country, not party or faction. So, um, and spectacle instead of policy, and he didn't want to, uh, any more name-calling for reasoned debate. I thought it was a solid speech. It was a B-plus, A-minus. That's Barack Obama's grade for the midterm, and we will evaluate his second-term performance in upcoming weeks here on Gray Matters. Stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up next. Mm -hmm. 